Psalm 7, and we'll be studying this psalm this evening. And our theme for this evening is the world's injustice and the Christian's confidence. The world's injustice and the Christian's confidence. In Northern Ireland, the word justice is never far from the headlines. Uh, just this past Wednesday, uh, the Stormont Assembly was recalled for a special sitting, and all five of our main political parties find something to agree on. It doesn't often happen, but they were unanimous. They were united in their agreement this week that they were firmly against the proposals of the UK government uh, for dealing with the legacy of the Troubles. The proposals of the Westminster government would mean that no further prosecutions can be made for Troubles-related crimes before 1998. And among other things, it was said that such a proposal is unjust unfair. And of course there are many situations in our world today that we look at and think that is unjust. It's not right. We look at the crimes that some people have committed. Perhaps crimes against uh, vulnerable children even. And some, per- some of the perpetrators are, are never even caught. And some criminals even if they are caught their punishments seem far too light. Or we look at the amount of money in the hands of a select few individuals today. Enough for some of them even to fly their own rockets up into space briefly and crash back down again. And yet there are millions of people around the world with barely a penny to their name. We heard this morning about those who don't even have enough money to play a bit of five-a-side football once a week. And we think that's just not right. It's not just that things are that way. Or maybe we've experienced injustice ourselves we've been overlooked for a promotion and and we know why it is that that other person got their promotion and we know that they've been underhand and less than fully integrous in what they've been doing or we've been blamed for something that someone else in our class at school actually did or someone else on our team or on the opposing team did we've got the raw end of the deal in some situation or other sadly to live in this world is to experience injustice. Well, Psalm 7 is a psalm appealing to God for justice. King David has been unjustly accused of things he has not done. As I mentioned earlier, the title of the psalm tells us that David wrote it because of the words of uh, a man called Cush, a Benjamite. And we don't know exactly what Cush was up to or what the problem was, but it's interesting that he was a Benjamite Uh, The same tribe as King Saul, whom David replaced. And if you read through parts of 1st and 2nd Samuel, you find that there were those who remained loyal to Saul long after Saul had died. Or they remained loyal to the house of Saul after Saul had died. And they tried to make life very difficult for David in various ways. And so likely David is facing criticism, threats, slander. And all of it, he says in his psalm, is entirely unfair unjust and yet if you look closely at this psalm what you find is that despite the injustice that David is facing it's actually a psalm full of quiet confidence (coughs) despite the perhaps dangerous situation David is confident in the face of the injustice around him What reasons does David have to be confident? What reasons do we have today to be confident even when we face injustice? 
Well, at least four reasons from this psalm that we can be confident we'll spend most of our time on the first and second. But notice, first of all, that we can be confident in the, in the face of injustice if God is my God. We can be confident because God is my God. That is to say that we have a special relationship, a personal relationship with God. Notice the very first words of the psalm. O Lord, my God. O Lord, my God. Notice again verse 3. He says the same words again. My God. And we've seen this a few times already in the first few psalms. We thought about it even a little bit this morning. How David often and constantly is using this special name for God, Yahweh. My, that's to say, my covenant God. There are, there are quite a few names for God given in the Old Testament and in the original Hebrew. Names like El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. The, the all-powerful God, Elohim. Uh, which refers to the God who created the heavens and the earth. But as I was saying this morning, Yahweh is that special, personal, covenantal name of God. The name that people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob uh, knew God by. It was Yahweh who had empowered David to fight Goliath. If you read that wonderful chapter of the Bible, 1 Samuel 17, you see that all through it, When David finally steps onto the battlefield and speaks to Goliath, he mentions the name of Yahweh. It was Yahweh who had kept David safe from the clutches of King Saul when he was on the run for 10 years of his life. David has a personal relationship, not just with El Shaddai, the Almighty God, or the God of creation, but with my God, my covenant God. He says in verse 1, it is in you, Yahweh, that I take refuge. And the sense that we have here, friends, and we see this all through the Psalms, is that this is David's constant practice and habit. He constantly, repeatedly takes refuge in Yahweh. That's what the covenant name of God means for David. It means a safe place, a place of protection. David knew what it was to seek out the, uh, the best spots in the mountains or the caves or the wilderness or the forests. Places that humanly speaking, well, yeah, you know, that's, maybe that's a good high position or, or a, a dark, uh, deep cave that no one would, would think to look in. But David doesn't rely on those places ultimately for protection. He relies on his covenant God for refuge and protection. David's facing someone who was probably telling lies about him as loudly and widely as he possibly could. Likely Cush the Benjamite was trying to turn as much of the kingdom of of Israel away from David as he possibly could. Not just a few fellow employees or a few people on your street or people in your church or on your team, but a whole nation he was trying to turn away from David. David's response is not to find the worst possible thing to say about Cush, you know, to dig up some dirt about Cush and publish it as far and wide as he could. David's response is not to hire his personal hit squad to quietly get rid of Cush in the middle of the night. David's response is to turn to my God, Yahweh, in prayer. Look how he pleads his innocence in verse 3. 
If I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, speaking of course here to God in prayer, he says, if I've done any of these things, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Notice, friends, that David invites God's examination. He's, he's looked at his own heart and life before even coming to God in prayer. And this is not David saying that he's perfect. Well, we saw this morning a psalm in which David acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges his sin in several psalms. But what he's saying is that in this particular situation, this particular scenario, he is innocent of what he's being accused of. He, is, he has done nothing to deserve the treatment that he's currently receiving. But he doesn't go out into the world and answer Cush back or attack Cush violently. He cries out to his personal refuge, his God, for help. I wonder are we as quick as David when we feel we are being unfairly treated to cry out to God for help? So often prayer is our last resort and not our first resort. It comes after we've ranted to our spouse about that annoying colleague or ranted on social media about some problem or frustration we're facing. Or we've tried just not to think about it and hope that our favourite treat or our favourite TV show will numb the pain somewhat. If prayer is our last resort, friends, we're not going to pray with any real confidence when we do come to pray. Because up until we really, really needed it, we haven't been walking closely with the Lord. We haven't trusted him enough to bring the problem to him. We've been drifting spiritually. And that will drain us of confidence to pray if we, if we don't make it our first resort. Charles Spurgeon says, It is never right to distrust God and never vain to trust him. It's never right to distrust God. And probably many of us would say, Oh, of course I trust God. Well, the evidence of that is in how quickly we go to God with that which is burdening us and concerning us. Can you say with David, O Lord, my God, do you have that close personal relationship with your Father in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ? Once again, of course, Jesus is our model and our example in these things. I read the words from Scripture last week after Jesus had experienced that scandalous injustice of the trials of Herod and Pilate and the Jews. As he died on the cross, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Another way of saying, you are my refuge. His confidence at all times, through all the pain and trial that he faced, was in his, in his Father God. Is that where our confidence is, friends? When people feel that justice haven't been, hasn't been served, they often talk about feeling let down. We heard a lot of that in the news this past week again to do with the issues in our own uh, nation. People saying that the government has let them down, that they haven't received what was due, that um, the right thing hasn't been done. Friends, we will never have reason to say that about God. He will never let us down. He will never allow injustice to go unchecked. We might have to wait a long time. It might not be for decades or even until the final judgment that we get justice. But we will get justice. And our confidence will be stronger if day by day we are crying out to him. Because of that personal relationship we have with him. 
as David shows us here. Sooner or later, God will bring justice. That leads us on to our second point this evening. Not only can we have confidence because God is my God, but confidence because God is a just God. Confident because God is a just God. Look at verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. And look also at verse 11. God is a just judge and a God who feels indignation. That's righteous anger every day. David says God is righteously angry every single day. Now, if you're a Christian and you hear those words, you should be thinking, praise God. I'm glad to hear that my God is righteously angry every single day. Because when we look at our world, we see so much to be angry about. When we hear the name of Jesus used as a swear word. When we see the suffering that people are experiencing because of human greed and selfishness. When we see our society celebrating things that it should be utterly ashamed of. We should be angry when we hear of how Christians are being treated in countries where they are persecuted and slandered and beaten and murdered. There's a lot to be angry about in this world. But friends, David has every confidence that God does see all those things as well. And if we who are still a mix of sanctified and sinners, if we who are not yet perfect and so our our view of the world is imperfect, if we feel righteously angry at times, how much more does our perfect God get righteously angry? So David says in verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. You have appointed a judgment. Look at the confidence in David here. My God is a just God. He has appointed a judgment. There is nothing hidden from him. I read recently that makeup artists are having to work harder than ever on TV shows and on movie sets um, to, to get the, the look of the actors and actresses just right and to, 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 to get the, uh, the makeup just right because the high definition quality of the cameras and the, and the TV screens that we're used to now, they show up any little flaw or inconsistency. Well, friends, nothing in this world is hidden. Nothing in your heart or my heart, nothing in our nation or any nation is hidden from the all-seeing, all-knowing, perfectly just God. And David is confident that his God is a God of justice who will bring justice sooner or later. And it's a mark of growing in grace. It's a mark of Christian maturity that more and more included in our prayers are the kind of prayers that David records here. It's a mark of The fact that we are destined for heaven, that we're destined for a perfect kingdom, that our prayers will more and more be marked by the the attitude of, Lord Jesus, please come. Come soon. Lord Jesus, come so that we can be done with this rotten, worn out world. Let's be done with it. Come, Lord Jesus. 
That's actually how the Bible ends. It ends with a desire for the judge to come. Revelation 22, 20, the second from last verse in the Bible says, Come, Lord Jesus. You've given us your word. You've shown us your grace. You've died for our sins. Even to this very moment, you're giving opportunity for sinners to be saved through the preaching of the good news. But Lord Jesus, please come soon so that finally justice will be done. And of course, for Christians, Jesus' final judgment is nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. In fact, it's something to pray for. Jesus has instructed us to pray, your kingdom come. And among other things, of course, that's referring to his coming again. David goes so far as to say in verse 8, Judge me, O God, according to my righteousness. Again, David knew that he was innocent and in this particular circumstance, innocent of whatever he was being accused of. But friends, we can pray that prayer today as well, knowing that our faith is in the son of David, who makes us innocent in God's sight. Yes, we should still be repenting of our sin day by day. We don't fall into the trap of thinking that we're already perfect. But we know that as God looks at us, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, he declares us innocent. We have nothing to fear on the day that Jesus returns. Are you ready for the return of Jesus and the judgment it will bring? If it doesn't sound like good news to you that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead, then maybe that's because you're not ready for him to return. You haven't had your sin dealt with. You haven't asked him to forgive you. Well, you have an opportunity this very night. Cry out to him as David does in this very psalm. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. That just means in you I trust. I trust you to have dealt with my sin at the cross. I trust you to forgive me for my sin. I trust you to welcome me into heaven someday. One of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, has said, There is no refuge from God. There is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. In other words, you can't hide from God, but you can come to God and ask for forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And deep down, we all know that there is a judgment coming. Eternity is on men's hearts, the Bible tells us. Whether, however much some people want to suppress it and pretend that there's nothing happening when they die, we know it. If there isn't a perfect God who is perfectly just, why does it ultimately matter that the Nazis slaughtered six million Jews during the 1930s and 40s? Why bother getting worked up about Islamic extremists in Nigeria slaughtering Christian men, women and children? If there is ultimately no perfectly good judge and no perfectly good judgment to come, well, why does abortion matter any more than what cereal you have for breakfast tomorrow morning? See, the logic of Darwin's atheistic evolution is survival of the fittest. Be as selfish as you like. Why does it really matter? But if there is going to be one awesome, ultimate, perfect judgment, then of course all those things matter. So friends, thank God and be assured and be confident 
that he will do justice in the end. He will do justice for you in whatever personal injustices you have faced. He will do justice by this whole world with all the sin and foolishness that it's guilty of. Confident because God is my God. Confident because God is a just God. Thirdly, confident because God is an all-powerful God. Confident because God is an all-powerful God. We might think, are some situations not just too far gone? Are some people not just in too much of a, a mess of sin and injustice for God to deal with? Well, look at verse 12. If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Picture here is of God ready for anything that he faces. Ready for the worst that the world can throw at us or even at him. Sometimes in the movies, there'll be a a quick montage of the hero strapping on every single weapon at his disposal. Huge big sword, a bow, arrows, daggers, a gun perhaps, a shield, a spear. He has everything that he could possibly need for the battle. He can deal with his enemies any way he likes. And that's how David pictures God here. A warrior with every means at his disposal to deal with his enemies. His sword is sharp. His bow is pulled back. His arrows will not miss their mark. Here's the point, friends. God is ready to deal with the wicked any way he pleases. God can deal with the wicked any way he pleases. I've just been talking a lot about the the full and final judgment to come. But the truth is that God can judge sinners in different ways at different times. The Apostle Paul talks about this at length in Romans chapter 1. You can maybe read it when you... Uh, before you go to, go to bed tonight. But three times in Romans 1, Paul says, God gave them up. He's talking about uh, sinners committing all kinds of, of idolatry and sexual immorality and all these other things. And, and Paul says that God gave them up. doesn't mean that they died and went to hell, although ultimately that is what will happen to sinners. But it means that God actually punished them in ways even before they died. Silently, subtly judging them. And that's what David talks about towards the end of this psalm. He says here in verse 15, speaking about the wicked. He says, the wicked makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. What he's saying is that despite the best laid plans and desires of the wicked to continue on in sin... They fall, into their own, they fall into their own trap. They're, they're, they're made to be embarrassed and ashamed and made to look foolish for all that they've done. And that's a picture, friends, of the way that sinners are living their lives today. God sometimes allows them to chase after whatever it is that they think is going to be so good for them and such a great experience for them, whether it's more money or sexual conquests or possessions or work or entertainment. And what happens is those things become the very pit, the very trap into which they fall into misery and shame and judgment. And that's what we're seeing in our country today. We have 
a crisis of mental health, a crisis of loneliness, a crisis of identity. In no small part because for decade after decade our nation has ignored God's laws and people have lived by the empty mantras of be your best self and live your best life and become who you are. Well who you are as a sinner with a nature bent away from God who is ultimate good and towards sin which is ultimate death. And sometimes God judges sinners in this life by giving them exactly what they've been wanting so much and allowing them to experience the misery of it. David says in verse 16, his mischief returns upon his own head. And it's no coincidence, it's God, all-powerful, choosing whatever means he wants to deal with sin. Think of some of the worst enemies of God and his people in the Bible. How did it end for Pharaoh? What happened to King Belshazzar after he started using God's temple utensils at his drunken party? Where did King Saul's obsessive pursuit of David get him? It's no different today, friends. Sooner or later, one way or another, God will choose his sword, his bow or his arrow, and he will come crashing down on those who refuse to repent. Those who refuse to repent of sexual sin, of greed, abuse, deceit, disregarding the sanctity of life, disregarding the Lord's day, whatever it may be. And again, the question for you this evening is, where do you stand before this just and holy God? Where is your sin leading you? Is it dealt with? Is it done through the scandalous grace of the cross of Jesus Christ? Or is your sin dragging you down into the pit of hell itself? Or can you say with David, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, the righteousness you have through faith in Jesus Christ? So in a world of injustice, we can be confident if God is my God, your God. We can be confident because God is a just God. We can be confident because God is an all-powerful God. And just briefly as we close, if we have all these things, we we will be confident enough to offer praise to God. Confident enough to offer praise to God. And this is just in a word as we close. Look at verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. It's interesting that David ends the psalm by describing God as the Most High. That's speaking of God's authority, that there is no one higher than him. There is no one with more authority and power than him. Sometimes it feels like our enemies and and the the sinful influencers and uh, peddlers and and those behind the scenes that work in our world, that they're the most high, that they're the most powerful. David says, my God is most high. And so often in the Psalms, we find that there are prayers offered to God in dire circumstances The situation is bleak and dangerous. The psalmist is at his wit's end. And yet the psalms still finish with praise. The trial isn't over. The resolution hasn't come. The danger is still at the doorstep. But David finishes by praising God nonetheless. One writer says, Whether in tears or triumph, we never get away from worship, from having to deal with God. 
And that's, of course, why it's so important that we be here in the place of worship with God's people, regardless of how we feel. So much of modern worship and, and the modern attitude, even of professing Christians, it's, it's really based on our feelings, whether we feel like worshipping or how we feel like worshipping. It's not the point of worship. Worship is not about how we feel. It's about what we know. More precisely, who we know. That we are coming to worship the Lord Most High. The one above whom there is no one else. The righteous judge. The all-powerful judge. We come to worship confident that he sees the mess our world is in. And he is ready to listen and answer us. Because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so we praise him with confidence that his perfect judgment is coming in the end. The world you live in is full of injustice. But if you're a Christian, you can still be confident. Not because you're physically healthy or because your team is winning. Or because uh, the injustice you're facing doesn't really matter. But because you can say the Lord is my God. And he is a just God and he is an all-powerful God and he is worthy to be praised. Amen.